Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. This is a week where the government had its first big loss on the floor of Parliament with its Housing Australia Future Fund bill uh, delayed by the Senate, um, by the Greens, the Liberals and the other right-wing independents teaming up. And I'm here with Everald Compton, good friend, to talk about it. How are you, Ev? Oh, I'm good, mate. I'm good and... I've got to tell you that the state of parliament worries me. It's the way in which we're going to talk about the debates in a moment, but the way in which they're carried out, in my view, is now awfully undignified and not terribly intelligent and heavily weighted with politics and hatred and nonsense and uh, headline grabbing and whatever. But that's uh, another story. The, the housing thing is uh, intriguing. <clears throat> First of all, what you know, the sensible thing for the Greens to have done, in my view, is to say, OK, let's put through what the Labor budget said, but they meet Albanese beforehand and say, right, are we going to vote yes on the understanding that you will now uh, allow us to introduce another bill for debate uh, uh, to upgrade, you know, uh, what you've done? Uh, I can't see any point in stopping something because it's inadequate. Uh, the thing is, gradualism is the, the backbone of decent politics. I can't really see the Greens rationale except for one thing. They're hoping that it will win them some more seats at the next election, and, and I think it's heavily weighted in that favour. Now, I'm getting cynical in my old age. Uh, James, what do you think? Um, so I suppose to make a couple of points, the the Greens' bill, to my mind, is objectively better than the bill Labor proposes. There is more money for social and affordable housing. Um, there is more money for community and public housing. There is more bills and more supply and a lot to alleviate stress on both future homeowners, first home buyers and crucially renters uh, and our most vulnerable who need social, affordable community and public housing. The flip side of that, though, is both Labor and the Greens have been far too pig-headed here. Um, the result we've got now is we don't have Labor's bill, which I think can be rightly criticised as inadequate, but it's still something. We don't have the Greens' bill, which I think is probably closer to adequate. Now, we've just got nothing now. We've got an impasse. Um, you know, you'd rather... 10,000 people be put in affordable housing than zero, but because Labor and the Greens can't work this out amongst themselves, we've got zero. Um, there's that old saying that 60% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And while that's true, that, of course, doesn't give the Labor Party a right to just give the Greens an ultimatum and say, well, pass our bill or the highway. Um, the Greens also shouldn't be issuing ultimatums saying pass our bill or the highway. I think you're right when you say compromise and gradualism are the backbone of good government, and especially with something like this. Uh, the Housing Future Fund is not a referendum, say, where you've only really got one chance to get it right, and if you don't get it right, you've got to have a whole other referendum again to fix it. It's a bill. It will be an act, and if you want to do more, you can pass another bill. It's that easy. Um, so it would be much better, to my mind, to have a base to go off and then to hopefully go for more and more um, than to 
block the thing altogether, stop it from getting through. Because what I'm worried about now is this finally gives the coalition an in to say, oh, look, it's it's Labor Greens infighting, it's chaos all over again, only the coalition provides steady governance, which we know isn't true, of course. Uh, if the past nine years of coalition government taught us anything, it's that they are far from a steady party in government. But a lot of people still believe that, that you know, the Labor Greens infighting rocks this country apart, and all that stuff. And I think whilst in the short term, the Greens may think this is politically wise, uh, in, in the long term, they're not making any friends with this and they're also hurting the Labor Party's chances in a future election too. The only thing this does to my mind is benefit the coalition and that's bad. Well, well James, a couple of things here. I believe that the Greens are building up uh, to the next uh, election where they believe they can win more inner-city seats um, in the House of uh, Reps and pick up some extra senators. And I believe it's totally politically uh, uh, motivated. Now, when you're in politics, that's what you do. Trying to... But Albo came out and he made a big mistake. He came out and said after they said they're going to delay this till October, he said, you've now given me ground to have a call an early election. Well, I think that's exactly what the Greens want to happen is to have an early election call because they think that between housing and climate change, they can stir up the electorate, uh, you know, in a way that will get them some seats. So they want Albo to call the early election. So uh, there needs to be some common sense somewhere. What I find extraordinary is uh, I, when I visit Parliament, uh, I visit all parties, when you go and see a Green candidate, the atmosphere in the room, the conversation is utterly different to when you go and see someone from the LNP. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm, I'm trying to go, oh, they're a totally different outlook, totally different atmosphere, totally different purpose. And yet they vote together to beat Albo. That, that's like, you know, going to bed with the most doubtful woman in town. I mean, I, mean, it's, uh, it, 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 I find that extraordinary. Yeah, and I mean... You know, I, like, I have a lot of good things to say about the Greens. They're visionary. They push the Labor Party to be better. They're the party who's been the most correct about climate change for the past, you know, ever since their existence, I guess. They're the party who's been calling for the most climate action and so on. Um, they're the only party in the House that's calling for pensions and job seeker and whatnot to be above the poverty line. Um, they, these are all really commendable things. At the end of the day, though, this is, I think, a particularly unsavvy move. You're right, I think, when you say they want an early election. Um, Albo shouldn't be going around threatening an election because, frankly, uh, Kevin Bonham's a guy on Twitter who does polling analysis. He's very good. He's run the numbers and he's basically said there's no chance Labor can get a Senate that will, A, give them enough votes to pass this without the Greens. Like, it's just not possible for that yeah. to... Um, for that to happen, for Labor to clean out the Senate, quote-unquote, get rid of all these pesky Greens blocking their way and replace them with Labor senators. Like, the math just doesn't work out in the States. The only thing an early election could lead to, especially if it were a double disillusion triggered by the non-passing of this bill, would be a bunch more one-nation senators and right-wing minor party senators uh, in the Senate instead of Liberal senators. And one nation and Clive Palmer's United Australia Party wouldn't be 
keen to come to the table on this either. So it's just, it's, I think you're right when you say there's a bit of stupidity all around. And I think it's, it's, it's certainly a time where cooler heads need to come together, sit down, take a breather and get this bill through. But there's a way for Albo around this, though, and I've seen it happen before in my visits to Parliament. <clears throat> Forgetting about the bills that are before the House, Albo could call a meeting of all the state premiers next week if he wanted to and say, can we together, as a national cabinet, agree on a, a housing policy and, and what it's going to cost and, and how much we're going to distribute it between the feds and the states and we'll all go back and get our parliament to do this special bill. We leave my other bill wallowing in the Senate there. Uh, and, and if it goes through, well, that's fine. But let's take in the, let's not have the Greens control the agenda. Let's take over the agenda and put up a new bill that's got nothing to do with the budget. That's specifically about the feds and the states providing some uh, uh, some affordable housing. Why can't Alba do that? There is no reason he can't do that. You're right. And I mean, that would be a great way of shifting the narrative. Like if Alba <laughs> wants to say, look, I'm trying to get this bill through, but it's being blocked by the pesky Greens. And again, there are reasons that narrative is misleading because, you know, Labor can make concessions too and get the bill through. But putting that to one side, he can absolutely go to the States, knock up something awesome and say, look, guys, this is what I'm doing. When there are roadblocks in my way, I find a way to fix them. Um, exactly. And it would be very, very smart politics for him to do that. But also, I'm wondering, James, there's another thing. These bills are going through Parliament believing that Australians still have the great vision that all Australians, that one day they'll own their own house, which happened to me when I got married and four homes later, Helen and I used to Lord's own own home. We've now got neighbours saying let's get rid of our house, that the idea of home ownership is no good you're in all sorts of problems uh, you know, let's uh, get the capital for our house, that'll enable us to do a bit of travelling and we'll rent, uh, you know the, the idea of, uh, you know of having uh, 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 that, that's a fire I, mean, I think some smoke in the kitchen of my house, that's a <laughs> anyway if we burn down, you can see me bail out. Uh, the whole uh, the whole issue is, I'm not sure that the dream of Australians owning their home, home now still exists, James. Well, I think in in certain lifestyles, uh, renting definitely provides a certain flexibility that home ownership doesn't. E.g., people who have to move around a lot for work, like say people who want to do a lot of travelling. The thing is, though, more housing stock means rents are lower as well um, because there's more houses available for renters to rent. And so it becomes a place where, you know, it's not right now we have a not just a housing crisis for mortgage holders, but we also have a housing crisis for renters. And if there are more houses out there for renters to be able to rent, rent prices are lower too. So even if not every one of these houses will be going to owner occupiers, uh, more housing is good. And of course, in this housing bill, You've also got the public housing, the community housing, the social housing and all that, which is so, so important for our most vulnerable people um, in our society, especially in this cost of living crisis where homelessness is going through the roof, especially of younger people. So um, more houses, more better, I think. Let's go. Well, now let's, let's uh, move on. <coughs> Aaron, 
the Atlantic Ocean, uh, <coughs> a little sub uh, submersile, I think they call it, has sunk and exploded or exploded and sunk, it doesn't, doesn't matter which. <coughs> and an enormous search, a huge cost went on to find these guys. And I think there's going to be an argument now that it's all over as who's going to pay the bill for all that. But a week earlier, a boat capsized in, in the Mediterranean with 700 uh, refugees on board that thought that 500 of them have drowned. Now, a research a search went on for a day or two days with planes flying around. There was no submarine sent there to have a look at the upturned boat or whatever. And so an enormous effort was put in to save five guys, but no enormous effort to save 500 guys. And I actually thought that tells us one hell of a lot about the mindset of the world in, in which in which we live. I was a bit, uh, well, I feel sorry for the five guys on that, on that boat. Uh, the fact of the matter were there was a greater humanitarian crisis on in the Mediterranean. Yeah, it, it's sort of... Um... A absolute tragedy what happened on the submersible obviously and absolute tragedy what happened in the mediterranean it, it it sort of reminds me of when um the notre dame cathedral caught fire and we had all these people you know it was on the news every day it was such a great tragedy um and all these benefactors were lining up to fix and repair it um all the while you know every day um in certain countries war-torn countries um especially during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, America and Australia and the Allies were blowing up countless important historical Muslim religious sites and we didn't have benefactors lining up to help the Muslim world um, when their religious sites were damaged, destroyed, vandalised and so on. Um, you know, here in Australia, we have um, Indigenous cultural heritage sites blown up all the time to create mines and whatnot. And we don't have benefactors lining up to save or restore them. Uh, and it, it, it's a similar deal, I think, where sort of something um, closer to home, like here, uh, you know, the Notre Dame Cathedral was an important Catholic site, lots of Catholics in Australia and America and whatnot. Likewise, these, the guys in the submersible were Americans. Somehow people seem to care more about like something like that when it happens closer to home than, 500 refugees which they can put into like a, a sort of they can compartmentalize as abstract and i think that's really really sad because like you say we're clearly not very compact our, our compassion for our fellow man seems to be conditional on how much we can relate to them and that's really bad because you know all around the world like you point out there are so many tragedies that got not even a, a hundredth of the media attention or support or efforts that this submersible search got. Yeah, well, it, it's a, it was a tragedy uh, uh, all around, but you know yes. that, that's the way the, uh, uh, the you know that's the way the world goes, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, it, it really, as you say, it, it, it comes home to me over and over again. Whenever there's a crisis, whether there's a financial crisis or a social crisis or a humanitarian. Crisis, it's always the little guys that finally pay the great price and, 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 and the wealthy guys get away. Now, I'm not saying that all wealthy guys are bad guys, but all I'm saying is every crisis in the world, no matter what it is, in the final analysis, the little guys pay a social, human, 
or economic cost. And that's something we've got to write in the world somewhere. Yeah. And just, just talking about refugees, I mean, in um in the late two thousands, early twenty tens, we had a refugee boat sink off the shore of Australia and our Coast Guard did pretty much nothing to save the refugees. Yeah. Um, they stayed pat around Christmas Island, the Christmas Island boat tragedy. And the surviving refugees and the widows and families of the refugees who um, who passed away tried suing the Commonwealth for not saving their them and their family and whatnot. And they lost. Um, and they lost because, like you say, when, when something like this, a tragedy like this happens to refugees um, or to vulnerable people, uh, or the little guy. No one, no one really cares. There's no one there for him. Yeah, well, too, it's, it's a, not well, anyway. There, there's all sorts of things happen in the world. Some good and some bad. We seem to have more bad than good. But let's move on to the time running on. The Parliament finally passed in the Senate on on Monday the bill for uh, the voice referendum. It's rumoured that it will be on October 14. And that hasn't been confirmed. But I noticed that yesterday Peter Dutton came out and wanted uh, the referendum uh, deferred. Uh, now, uh, I, I think he's got to keep coming up uh, with reasons why he's saying no and whatever. But if I was doing it, I'd put the referendum on next month. I think everybody had a gutful of the acrimonious debate at the moment. I think if you said to most Australians, can we have this vote in a month's time so we can get it over with? It's one hell. They're going to talk it to death by October, absolutely talk it to death. And so but the whole idea of, of I think Peter Dutton's wanting to make sure he does talk it to death, but uh, it's all a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's like a, a thing that says referendums have to take place, you know, X amount of time after the bill's passed or whatever. But um, I, I just feel sorry for like indigenous people. Really, like I remember when we had that same-sex marriage postal vote. I sort of I felt so sorry for the LGBTQI plus community because like it's a whole bunch of straight people voting on whether the LGBTQI plus people get to have the same rights as all the straight people. And it's a similar thing here, like 2.5% of our population is Indigenous. And for the next four months, um, Indigenous people have to put up with, by and large, a bunch of white people debating whether or not they should get to have rights. And that must just be such a tiring uh, experience, it's like especially because the whole reason Indigenous Australians have structural and sociocultural disadvantages that face them in this country is because of the white people coming to this country and uprooting the systems of life and self-governance, which tens of thousands of years had worked for the Indigenous Australians. So it, it just must be a, a tiresome experience. Well, it is all, you know, it is all round and uh, there's there, there, a problem. Well, let's, let's look at the uh, uh, good and bad guys, uh, uh, you know, for the weekend. Uh, you know, it's 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 always uh, hard to pick uh, uh, good and bad. I'm going to let you go first with your good guy first, James. I'll be democratic. Usually, I head off. I'm showing pure democracy now, man. 
Last week, my um, my good guy was the Australian cricket team. We wished them well. The Ashes, uh, the test that was going on at the time. My good guy this week is Pat Cummins, the Australian captain, for delivering the Aussies a big win in the first test at Edgbaston. Um, Pat Cummins has always been talked about as someone who can hold, the, even though he's a bowler, um, he's always been talked about as someone who can bat a bit. But at test level, he sort of struggled to reach his form with the bat that you showed in domestic and other cricket. Um, but with the bat, this test, Pat Cummins and Nathan Lyon, big 60-run stand for the ninth wicket, got Australia home in a very tricky chase on the fifth day at Edgebaston. Um, I just mentioned before, you know, um, <laughs> that the Indigenous ways of life were uprooted by English settlement and colonisation and invasion of Australia. Um Pat Cummins and the boys sticking one back up the old enemy. Uh, a win for the Republican movement, a win for Australia, and a big loss for monarchists <laughs> all around the globe. So good on you, Patty. Good on the boys. Well, you know, uh, look, my, my, my good guy, like, look, uh, you left a good comment, James, uh, and I was a bit put off by that English bowler fellow, you know, men that read it all hell to... Uh, but Kawaja wasn't it when they yeah. only bowled him? Uh, we don't need that sort of grubby stuff in, uh, you know, in trade. But look, my, my good guy of the week is uh, is David Attenborough. You know, Sir David Attenborough happens to be two years older than me, who came out this week with a a, a very important statement by the BBC about the destruction of plant and animal life in the world. He, he wasn't making a statement. He's already made many statements about climate change. But he said beyond climate change, there is human destruction of, of plants and animals worldwide. And he pointed out how many, in his lifetime, how many species of animals and plants have died, disappeared, gone from the world. And he called for a stop. That, that on top of the climate change thing, he said, let's try and stop the destruction of nature uh, itself. And he made a very impassioned plea. And I have a very high plea. I've read all these books at and and I've watched him from, you know, when he first started broadcasting 60 years ago, a very articulate man with a very special way of putting the story uh, over, and there's no political bones in him at all. He just gives you, you know, what is the realistic thing. So I, I went on Twitter and praised the great man. I, I thought uh, he raised a very important issue. Ah, well, um, that's wonderful. I mean, David Attenborough is one of those people who I think you know, politicians and whatnot are controversial and generally have approval ratings along partisan lines. But I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't like David Attenborough and doesn't respect David Attenborough. And yet so many people don't listen to what he has to say. So I think if we did a little less um, respecting and a little more actually listening, um, it wouldn't be too hard to put what he's saying into effect. Well, well exactly, exactly right. Now, now who's who, your bad guy for the week this time, Dan? Um well, we've gone, I, I had a sporting good guy, I'll have a sporting bad guy too. My bad guy of the week is um, Brad Fittler, the New South Wales coach. Um, I disagreed vehemently with his teams, and I know, Avril, you're not the biggest fan of State of Origin because you think rugby league is a bunch of meatheads giving I've, each I've, other I've never, never guilty of watching it, mate. <laughs> I, I am, I've been uh, guilty of watching it every year. I'm a repeat offender as long as I've been alive. And look, <laughs> I, I, I didn't agree with Freddie's team selections. Um, I think he got vastly outcoached by Billy Slater. And it must be said, Billy Slater is a really awesome coach. Uh, he's doing great things for the Queensland team, as much as it pains me to admit it. 
But um, as, as passionate as Freddie is about Blues and about New South Wales, I think it is time to move on. Um, my dad is a Queenslander. One of my old bosses is a Queenslander. I know too many Queenslanders, and every time Queensland win, I cop it on multiple angles. And the world doesn't revolve around me, but uh, for this, uh, I think um, Brad Fittler has aggrieved all five million New South Welshmen who know Queenslanders and have to put up with the flack that they are copping from Queenslanders and will continue to cop from the Queenslanders until New South Wales wins origin. Uh, next yeah, time. well, it's one of the reasons I don't. Well, first of all, I'm not a rugby league fan. I think it's a terrible game. I'm an Aussie rules and a rugby union man because you got it with rugby union. You got to have a bit of brains to get around the scrums and the rucks and the lineouts and and whatever. So I'm not a rugby league fan. So I start with that, but it's always worried me the passion that Queenslanders stir up against New South Wales. Now it's happened since I was a little kid. The New South Welshmen were always with those big monsters over the border who were trying to crush Queensland. They're trying to discipline everything in life, money, jobs. And New South Wales always been the big ogre. And I'm blown away with it. I've never ever declared myself to be a Queenslander. I'm an Australian who is happily living in Queensland, uh, but I'm an Aussie. And the hatred that Queensland gets for New South Wales uh, really, uh, you know, I think is... Uh, you know, almost bordered on the juvenile, but you know, you know, that's 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 where we are. Mm. And, did you say you had a second baddie? No, no, I don't. No, no. Well, well, I've got um, yeah, I've got two baddies. Uh, uh, one one is um, Hunter Biden, the the son of Joe Biden, is now confessed and signed up to a couple of charges, which could very much uh, hinder his father's. Uh, election prospects for president. Now, I'm sure he didn't do it for that reason. He's also got some charges against him over in uh, Ukraine, but, but it, uh, I think it would have been a lot better if he'd confessed to all of those things years ago instead of leaving his father in this uh, in this situation. But then you've got to raise the fact, you know, should a politician always be judged by their children or uh, should a woman uh, always be judged by what a husband does or whatever, but I don't think Hunter Biden covered himself in glory. Do you think that'll hurt Joe in getting re-elected? Uh, not, not really. I think the American public has developed a bit of apathy to corruption and whatnot, like Hunter Biden did some light tax fraud. Um, Trump's kids were, like, selling intelligence to foreign powers, um, not, not to say, well... I, one is significantly worse than the other, and the worst one is the one the Trump kids were doing. But um, point being, like, I, I think the American public, this is sort of a story from what I've been told that only, like, rabid, 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 rabid Trump fans care about. Like, to most people, Hunter Biden, they don't... They, it's just a shrug your shoulders and move on thing. Like, when there's a cost of living crisis and um, whatnot, gas prices are through the roof, all gas prices are coming down, um, people sort of look past whatever Hunter Biden's doing. Well, well, let's hope that's the case. I hope it doesn't uh, uh, harm Joe. The, the other one I got is Boris Johnson, uh, whom you know, a committee. He resigned. He jumped before a committee of parliament consisting of some of his own people uh, uh, brought down the most damning report about his behaviour as prime minister. And he is now, according to the Spectator magazine that I read, which is a right-wing magazine and therefore very pro-right-wing guide, uh, 
they have said that Boris Johnson has told the inner circles that he is going to spend all his time outside of Parliament bringing down Rishi Sunak and the Conservative Party because they treated him badly. Now, blood if I can work out how they treated him badly. I, I think Boris Johnson's a very irresponsible, indiscreet, uh, you know, guy who's got, you know, no sense of what's, uh, uh, you know, right and, right and wrong, uh, uh, shown by his social life where he's had several marriages and children, but there's also another seven or eight kids around England claiming that Boris is their father. Now, that's not saying anything about his morals. That's saying something about the sheer irresponsibility of him as a person, and he's, he's bad that from the outside he's going to bring Sunak down. Now, what is that impression does that create on you, James? Well, I mean, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Anyone who says they're going to bring a Conservative Party down, high five, handshakes, you know, party time. But, um, yeah, I don't think Boris has covered himself in glory. I think your character assessment of Boris is pretty much perfect. He's one of those people who, with a fairly silver spoon upbringing, has never had to face responsibility in life and has always been able to sort of flip and jump from one experience to the next, have his way with yeah. it, um, get whatever he wants out of something and then move on, um, leaving whatever trail of destruction in his wake that's not his problem anymore. And that's what privilege does, right? It's, it's the same story with Trump. Trump is just someone who, um, no matter what he does, has always sort of been able to just cause, say, start a fire and then just walk away um, because privilege and money can do that and allow you to do that. And I think Boris is in the same boat, really. Um, obviously not as bad as Trump, but um, the same energy, the same sort of vibe. Now, look, now next week, James, I want to forecast that I want to raise the matter of uh, university education. This week, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne said it's time to get rid of HBs and, and train our best people free of charge in universities. I got on Twitter and mentioned that my four children, all of whom are around 60 years of age now, went to university in the Gough Whitlam era when university education was free and my four kids went through university without a bill over their heads and all, for which now all of them I think are uh, fairly conservative voters, but they think that the sun shines out of Gough Whitlam because he, 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 did that, uh, he did that for them. So I went out on Twitter and said, I think it's time that we got rid of fee-paying uh, universities and also mentioned it's time we stopped telling kids that they got to go to university. Anyway, I got something like 40,000 people viewed this tweet I did. 2,000 made a comment of some description. It's one of the hottest subjects I've had. So next week, uh, I, I want to have on the agenda, should we get rid of hex fees and, 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 uh, and what? How many million dollars do you owe hex anyway? You can tell me next week. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Um, look, because of the interest rates and the inflation and that by next week, it'll probably have tripled. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, there we go. Well, good to talk to you, James, and, and you have a good week and look forward to next Saturday. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll talk next week. Ciao. Yeah, bye for now.